Some women impersonate Sex in the City's Carrie Bradshaw with vast closets full of fantastic clothing. Even Sarah Jessica Parker pretends to be Carrie Bradshaw when she walks the red carpet. However, there is one woman in New York City who, if he knew her, would have been Darren Starr's real muse. Let me introduce you to Susan S. Warner, the adorable petite blonde who at 59 lost her handsome, extraordinary husband to cancer six months after her wonderful 32-year-old son died by suicide. It's now four years later. After the most challenging days and nights, Susan decided to live her best life possible. And just like that, Susan was suddenly single. Carrie may have Susan beat on exposure, but Susan has Carrie beat on life's experiences. Listen in. Not too many people understand why a growing number of men, women, and children are choosing death by suicide. The press is filled with young people and celebrities alike that take their own lives. It's now time to take a hard look at this phenomenon. My 32-year-old son died by suicide six years ago, and then tragically my husband of 38 years died of an aggressive cancer six months later. I have spent the last year sharing my experiences and thoughts with others through essays, editorial interviews, podcasts, and quotes from my soon-to-be-released book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. It's time for me to focus on the subject of suicide in ways we haven't heard before. I want to be very careful about the way I address this topic because I am not a trained mental health counselor. Unfortunately, I've had many more personal experiences in this area than many others. I want to share my insights and clear up many misconceptions. So Susan, what are the misconceptions about the subject of suicides? I think one of the most important misconceptions is that people think that suicide is cowardly behavior. And I want to absolutely say that it's not cowardly. It almost borders on brave. Brave in the way that people can continue on in their lives for years and years, doing productive activity and being loved and loving when, in fact, they're just harboring suicidal thoughts and idolation. It comes to be that it's the 10th, depression, I'm sorry, depression is the 10th leading cause of death in America. The suicide rates have climbed steadily for decades and decades. Talking with depressed people and offering them hope and support does help. But we've got to address where the problem actually lies. I think if you imagine your worst day, Lois, the day that either you lost a job or you lost someone, and you remember how that felt, that pit in your stomach that won't go away, well, imagine that happening all the time for you. And the few moments that you forget it and, and you don't feel much better because suddenly you remember and the pain and the hopelessness is back again and again. It's almost like a tsunami that takes over. And there's a voice in your head telling you that you're not worthy and you don't deserve to feel better and that the people love you because they don't know that you're worthless, that's how people feel who have suicidal tendencies. Imagine that you can't think of any way to get out of the pain. The only way you can get out is if you die. And it's not cowardly to feel that way, it's human. And yet we label people of suicide as being cowardly and being selfish. And I will forever say that suicide is a more selfless act than it is selfish. 
people who are suicides think that if they remove themselves from your life, that your life will be better. They don't think that they're hurting anybody they love. That's not the intent. So don't think of them as cowardly. Think of them as being brave for standing as long as they could stand. Well, that took my breath away. That was very powerful. I feel Um, that so strongly. I think that's going to resonate with so many people and uh, it will clear up a lot of (laughs) misconceptions. And boy, did you do that, you know, in a short time. So do you think there are more suicides than ever before and why? Well, absolutely. I mean, statistically, you'll see that suicide is rising. There was a slight leveling off pre-COVID and then it's absolutely soared. I believe that probably the greatest single problem is social media, and it's not going away. People that that put out pictures and, and attitudes and ideas that life is perfect and they're perfect and they filter pictures and they only let you see what you wanna see. When you project that onto your own life, it's dismal. There's also bullying on social media things that people will picture or say in words that they would never say to your face and texting, same thing. And this is particularly strong in pubescent and adolescent children where they are bullied and they are seeing things that they think are real and aren't and they can't separate it. And this is causing depression. And depression is a leading cause of suicide, depression and addiction. How we're going to change that? We're not getting rid of social media, so I think it would take better education and trying to teach our children, particularly our adolescents, our young adults, that social media is not real. TikTok is not real. It's what people want to present. And right now we have not done a good job of that. What about the shame that many uh, families feel? It's misplaced. I really believe that. I can tell you with the death of my son, I never felt shame that he was a suicide. He took his life, he died, and that pain and my grief was as if he died of any other way. There, isn't, there should be no shame associated with suicide in being the family of a suicide. And that's a societal idea that we need to dispel. People, as I said, that our suicide should be hailed for being able to stand as long as they did and not cowardly for what happened. There's a theory out there called the burning building theory that I'd like to explain a little bit. And that's when you are in a, it's a burning building idea where the flames are licking behind you and you're standing on a balcony and your choice is to go back into the flames that you know the destruction of that or to jump. Jumping is not appealing. Death is not appealing to a suicide. It's not something that they fantasize. But the unknown of jumping is more appealing than going back into the flames. And that's the idea of someone who is contemplating suicide and then um, attempting suicide, is that the flame is more destructive than what might happen with the jump. So understand that this is not I I think I'm going to soar through the sky. I think I'm going to be elevated to fly around. It's the lesser of two evils, the choice of the fire licking versus the jump. So if you can understand that and understand that this is how they think they might be able to move on, that's, I think, a better idea of suicide. Not that I have wings and will fly. It's not that. 
it's escaping the pain and the hopelessness more than anything else. Hmm. How should people react to families who are or have experienced this? As they would react to any other death, whether the person died by cancer, by a heart attack, by a car accident, by any other way, it's a loss. And suicide should not be categorized its own loss with stigmas or shame or other ideas that make the family feel inadequate or less than. Their grief is the same as anyone else's grief. In fact, in some way, there's a tug, what could I have done to prevent it, that they might not feel with an illness or an accident. So families should be coddled and sympathized with and given the same respect as any other death. There is no shame and no difference. Mourning is mourning, death is death. And I've said this continually and say it in my book, that your grief is not to be categorized or quantified. The grief you feel for a 90-year-old parent, if that devastates you, as the grief you feel for a peer or sibling, you have that right. No one should judge your grief. It's not fair. That's very true. Very true. How can you help someone who you think may harm him or herself? I think that you can help by making things not worse, by avoiding stereotypes to these people. When you announce that you think suicide is cowardly, you're sending a message to a person who's fighting suicidal thoughts that they're a coward, and you're just reinforcing how they feel, that they're less than. You need to support people. You need to tell them that they're worthy, that you love them, that they're important, and not diminish how they feel. Telling someone that they're less than is, as I said, supporting their suicidal thoughts. I will say that my comment to my son for a while was, the only way you'll hurt me is if you leave me. I think he knew what I meant, and I think for, for a period of time that worked. Unfortunately, it didn't work in the long haul. But I wanted him to know that I didn't think he was unworthy of my love and that he was not an unworthy person. And whether that helped for a short time or a longer time, I think that it helped a little. So support and understanding and making them feel worthy is the best thing you can do, not by telling them that suicide is selfish or cruel or or that, that they're hurting those people they left behind. And maybe in some way I did say that too, but that's not going to help. You've got to build them up and tell them that their feelings are real and you understand them. So Susan, a big question that people are very curious about and they want to do the right thing is how do we address the subject, the do's and the don'ts? probably comes from early education. You know, there is health education in the schools, and they deal with depression, with suicidal thoughts, or should, um, as well as um, mental health overall. And I think when you justify people's feelings, you can better help them recognize those feelings and become healthier. So I think the best thing to do is mental health education, and I don't mean a disclaimer that says if you're having suicidal thoughts, call this number, because as the parent of someone who was a suicide, I think that's absurd. No one's going to do that. I mean, unfortunately, I know suicide hotlines do get calls. I don't mean to say that, but 
you best need to understand how people who think this way feel, people who are depressed, people who are suffering with addictions, help them with self-esteem, help them feel worthy, help them understand that they deserve the love they get and they will not make your life better if they go away. And this comes through mental health education. And I can only think that that can best be done with young adults in our schools. Hmm. What are the absurd things that people have said? That's an interesting question. I think that the overwhelming thing that I thought was an absurdity was when David died, so many people around me and not to me, but like to my friends and behind my back, which is a silly way to put it, but I can't think of any other, would say, was he depressed? You know, was he seeking help? Did he have an addiction? Was he, was he drug addicted? And what they were thinking was, if, that, if those were David's problems and they weren't their children's problems, then it wasn't going to happen to them. Everybody wanted to make sure that he had a specific problem that he either didn't deal with or wasn't dealt with effectively that their child doesn't have so that they were exempt from this group. And that's not how it works. You know, people, there are, there are noted, successful people in the arts, in um, business, who are suicides, people you would never suspect. Um, David had that classic outside of love and endearment and always helping people and a beautiful smile. If you looked at a thousand pictures of David, the most obvious thing was his beautiful smile. But that goes back to the classic clown who smiles on the outside and his pain on the inside. Unfortunately, we did not realize the depths of his pain, the demons that he fought on a daily basis that were making him feel unworthy and, and playing with his self-confidence. So just because the person you know doesn't have any of the classic signs that you categorize is not going to exempt them. So that whole idea behind everyone chattering, you know, was he in therapy? Did they know? Did he have an addiction? Were there drugs? That's not going to help the situation. That's not classically what the problem is. So that was my biggest absurdity, I think. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, is there a certain, then uh, the next question, is there a certain trait in a person that makes them more prone to attempting suicide? Um, I'm going to be a little clip and tell you that there's really no such thing as attempting suicide. You are a suicide. Um, that's, a, that's not how suicide is currently looked at, is attempting or committing. You are a suicide. Um, I think the biggest issue we need to look into is depression and anxiety amongst our young people in society. The amount of anxiety and children adolescents and, and pubescent children on anxiety medications who feel anxiety on a daily basis is pretty much off the charts. I also don't think that depression is something that's so obvious. Sometimes there are people that are depressed that we're not aware of that. We don't um, understand that it is the 10th leading cause of death in America. And depression lies. And people can continue on in their life living the lies of depression and live very full, what appears to us to be productive lives when they are wrestling with that pit minute by minute of unworthiness and pain. And I think that 
the only way we can help is by understanding depression and anxiety and trying to eliminate that, particularly from young people in our culture. And driving them so hard, keeping up with looks and fashion and beauty and and importance of everybody has to achieve the highest. You know, I say to parents in my counseling, in my college counseling, the best college your child gets into isn't necessarily the best college for them. Don't get caught in the sweatshirt and the bumper sticker. Find a place where they're going to be culturally, intellectually, and socially comfortable. You know, there are students that like to claw intellectually and students that like to be at the top, not where your child is, and put right. them in an environment where they will be the most comfortable. And we don't do that. You know, we, we always want to go to the apex, and we need to reduce anxiety and depression in our children. Hmm. How can mental health counselors help? I think the question is, how do you get people to mental health counselors? And I think, again, even in the public school system in our, con con in our country, if we have psychologists and, and social workers set up that can look for signs and help alleviate all of this anxiety, that our society has created, post-COVID particularly, that we will better help our young people, which is probably the root of what we need to do, is get them early. And we can only do that through programs that are supported in public and private education. And that's been so politicized in our country, like everything else, like LGBTQ, like um, curriculum through the current programs that have changed courses because Certain political groups in our country don't want to have that taught. We need to find a bipartisan place where mental health is paramount in our curriculums to help students become healthier individuals. And I think that can only be done through education and money. You, yeah. you said something before that I wanted to address. You said that <clears throat> um, during COVID, the suicide count was not as high, or you said no, something before like pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, it was leveling off. <coughs> yeah, and then during COVID, it went out of control. <coughs> the isolation, mm -hmm. the isolation, um, the problems students had with trying to learn that way, not being able to see their peers, not being able to socialize, relying so much on social media, and isolation. Isolation was the biggest cause. So that has had a huge effect. And there's a trickle down in that because so much has turned to online. Even programs today are still online when I believe they should be in person. We are, you know, humans that need to socialize and we need each other and we need to feed off each other instead of going to still pictures or, or um, made up ideas on social media. And the recovery, the, the recovery we were feeling post, pre-COVID, and then slid during COVID has continued on a slide of depression, anxiety, and suicide uptick. Mm. Never, never thought about it that way. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at, look at adults. I mean, COVID had a, a profound effect on us as adults. Imagine if your brains are forming and that gray matter has so much to work with. Right. And children who need to be social, who need to have arguments, who need to lose in a game when they were only winning when they were playing their parents, who need to um, 
socialize and have conflict and have reward, we're not having it. And it's, it's a slow recovery. And it has not shown a recovery yet. And that's frightening as far as depression, anxiety, and suicide go. Well, our last question is then, should there be a formal education program on this subject? Well, I think that, as I said, it needs to be funded and it needs to be a part of our education, public and private. And we need to address mental health in a more comprehensive and a more understanding and a more elongated way where mental health is something we are always discussing, not one course for one half a semester, one year. It needs to be an ongoing program, I think, in our educational system where mental health is something that is looked at as stress reduction, as anxiety reduction, as suicide prevention, and not showing a film and slapping on a disclaimer. If you feel this way, please call. I don't think that works. So yes, I think as a society, we need to address this and we need to protect our children and give them better tools to work with depression and anxiety and suicidal isolation. Um, you know, also, and I wanted to discuss this, this generation seems to have a different view of death than past generations. Because of terrorism, because of mass shootings, where school was a safe place for children, it's now a place of anxiety where you have metal detectors because you have to. And students know that mass shootings and you go into your place of worship and you go through metal detectors and you see security people out there and, and they discuss how to exit as they do in, in most um, big halls and gatherings. And, you know, when we were young, we walked onto an airplane. Today, the children have to take off their shoes and their belts and their backpacks and their laptops. And that idea of death being more present and life being less valuable, I think has influenced them on a societal level. And it's a world we've created unfortunately for the next generation that we also need to work on where life is as precious as we know it is and that school shootings can't happen and mass shootings can't happen and you can't worry about being in a club or socializing in a music festival and someone takes out a gun and shoots them. So I think that that whole societal idea of life being less precious and less protected is something we need to change too. And that's an evolution of change also through politics and social norms. I think, I think that, that yeah. I think the last uh, question is a whole other podcast because uh, there's never been an impact like that before, and right. and people really need to understand that that is really the trigger in many ways. I'm not saying there mm -hmm. aren't others. So thank you for mm -hmm. that. That was great, Susan. I think that you have really helped everyone that's going to listen to this podcast. They're going so. to think. They're going to change attitudes. And um, I think you're going to have a great influence on many people. So we want to thank you very, very much. Thank you. I hope it does help people.